Thank you, R.C. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, this is the last chapter. What's he going to preach next week? Well, you've got to come and find out. You ever called a family meeting? As I was preparing this week, I knew that this would be one of those weeks where most of you are regulars and, you know, we call you home folks, part of the chapel family, and that's a good thing. And uh, so, so this message is really about that. It really is Paul calling kind of the end of this letter. You know, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he didn't say this is 1 Corinthians because 2 Corinthians is coming later. In fact, we believe he may have written as many as four letters to the Corinthians. But if you think about it, and also this, the letter didn't have chapters and verses. That's something we've added later. This is just a letter. And Paul just kind of summarizes in chapter 16 some practical words to the church family. And so I want to share those with you. In fact, just real simple this, this morning, it's giving, doing, and living. And I think we can make some personal applications to us as a chapel family, but also to folks who have churches that we're involved in when we're not here at the chapel the rest of the year. So Paul turns his attention then after 58 verses dealing with the resurrection. 58 verses. Now, again, he didn't have verses, but huge chunk of the letter is dealing with the resurrection and he goes right into verse 1 of chapter 16 now concerning the collection for the saints as i directed the churches of galatia so do you also on the first day of every week each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when i come when i arrive whomever you may approve i will send them with letters to carry your gift to jerusalem And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So Paul ends this huge section on the resurrection. You say, how do these two things connect? Let me tell you, listen, if Jesus Christ, one of the evidences that the risen Lord is in your life is that you joyfully give back to God. So the collection that he's talking about, he says, all right, now, just before I close the letter, let me say something as a reminder about this collection. What was the collection? They were taking an offering for the Christians in Jerusalem. Why were they having to take an offering for Christians in Jerusalem? Because they were hurting. They were struggling. To become a believer in Jerusalem probably, for the most part, meant this. It meant that you were brought up Jewish. And you have now walked away from the faith of your fathers. In fact, if you talk to a completed Jew, you would say, no, we didn't walk away from the faith of our fathers. We finally completed the faith of our fathers fathers we now have found the messiah that the old testament talked about and that's what the jews are waiting for the problem is by doing that in the first century meant you'd probably lost your family lost your support your income and so these people were hurting they were destitute they were being persecuted and so paul says now i've been telling every church about this collection they were taking in fact when you read the book of acts you see him talk a good bit about the collection that they were taking unfortunately The church in Corinth had not been real generous in the collection. And you know that's the case. If We've walked through this letter to the 1 Corinthians, this letter of 1 Corinthians this summer, and the church had a lot of infighting. And I just want to say, any time a church becomes inwardly focused, one of the things that's going to go with that is their generosity. They're not going to think about anybody outside the four walls of the church. It's that us for no more mentality. 
And that exists in the church today. It didn't just exist back in Corinth. It exists in the church today. And so Paul says, listen, as I've instructed the churches in Galatia, I'm instructing you the same way. Here's what I want to have take place then, Paul says. I want you, as I've directed, that on the first day of every week, set aside for this offering. Now, by, by this time in the first century, the Lord's Day had been designated as Sunday. Jews worshipped on the Sabbath on Saturday. But we, we see evidence of it in Acts. We see evidence of it here in other places that the Christians now had taken on Sunday as being the Lord's Day. And why is that? Well, Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. His first appearance to his disciples was on a Sunday. The second appearance was a week later on a Sunday. And so from the very beginning, nobody said, now let's pick Sunday. You don't, you don't see Paul saying, I want you to change your day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. It's just what had happened. And so Paul said, as far as this offering is concerned, I want you to every Sunday, first day of the week, take up an offering and set it in store. And if you read commentators, they'll say, now, where were they storing this? Well, they obviously weren't storing it at their house because Paul says, when I get there, I don't want to have to take an offering. So it wasn't that they were going to bring it from their homes. It was that they were keeping it in the treasury at the church. And so Paul says, be taking the offering. Be prepared so when I get there, we don't have to even mention this offering. We will just receive the offering as you have already been setting it aside intentionally. Then he says, once I get there, I want you to send some people with the offering back to Jerusalem. And so literally, you, you pick some people that you trust, that are trustworthy, to handle money, and you're going to send them back to Jerusalem. And Paul says, if it's fitting, I'll go with them. What, what does that mean? You know what I think Paul's saying? Paul's saying, not only if, it, if it's so that I'm able to go, but I think Paul is basically saying, if your offering is not an embarrassment to the kingdom of God, then I want to accompany that offering back to Jerusalem. I want to be able to hand that offering back to the Christians in Jerusalem. And by doing so, what is he saying? He's saying, your brothers in Corinth, who are not for the most part Jewish, have sent this to you. And your brothers all over Galatia and all over the Christian world of that time, they're supporting you. Wouldn't that be incredible for the Jews in Jerusalem who've come to faith in Christ to say, hey, we're not alone. And those people that we kind of look sideways at, you remember some of the controversy, especially in the book of Acts, that the Jews were saying, well, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to become a Jew to become a Christian. And yeah, you've placed your faith in Christ. That's not enough. And that's all addressed in the book of Acts. For them now to see, hey, we get, we're getting support financially from these brothers and sisters in the Lord in places like Corinth. Also think about Paul and in Jerusalem. What did Paul used to do for a living? He used to persecute Christians. Paul chased them out of the city of Jerusalem, chased them and hounded them to bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Some of them put in prison and some of them put to death. Now what's Paul doing? He's taking up an offering for Christians. God had obviously changed his life. And Paul says, you, you tell me who you would approve and they'll go with me or they'll accompany this offering back to Jerusalem. Let me just give you a few practical thoughts from this passage. And let me just remind you, some of the trustees are thinking, man, you need to save this message about the offering for next week. Because that's when we're receiving the homecoming offering. Our goal is $200,000, which scares most people. Well, one of the key components of giving offering is, first of all, that it be done 
purposefully. That it be done purposefully. I just want to encourage you. Be careful about just knee-jerk reactions to offerings. Give purposefully. I had a friend of mine. We were driving one day. This was when I lived up near Charlotte. And we came to one of those intersections. And, and folks, I've given money at intersections before. But it's because I felt led of God to do it. We pull up. He reaches in his pocket. They're collecting for something. And he throws $2 in the bucket. Pulls off, and he's got his lip poked out. What's that a sign up? He was real proud of what he just did. And I said, what did you just give to? And he said, I don't know. And I said, that's a problem. Folks, listen, at Christmas time, you're going to get stopped at intersections. You're going to get stopped walking into the grocery store or to a department store. And am I saying don't give to those people? No, you ought to give to them. But know what you're giving to. Don't just say, you know, I got extra, some extra dollars in my pocket, some extra change. I'm going to throw it in your bucket. Listen, some of those are ministries that are doing good things. But, folks, you ought to be stewards of what God's entrusted to you, and you can't do that if you're not giving purposefully. If you're just kind of tipping people, that's not purposeful. So the reason I preach this message this Sunday is, number one, it's just when it occurred in the Scripture. It's when I got to it. But secondly, if you're going to give in, a, in an offering like we have at Labor Day at the chapel, it ought to be because you've intended to do that. You didn't get blindsided when you walked in the door. Uh-oh, they're giving an offering. So give purposefully. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. you got your Bibles open there. I think it's on the screen. It says this, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For what? God loves a cheerful giver. You're not going to give purposefully as you've intentioned in your heart if you haven't even thought about it, if you haven't prayed about it, if you haven't asked God, God, what should I do here? A mother gave her little daughter a dollar and a quarter. And she said, honey, we're going to church, and they're going to have an offering today. And when the offering plate is passed, you put whichever one of these you think you need to put in the offering plate. After the service, the mother said, so what would you do during the offering, dear? And she said, well, Mom, I was going to give a dollar. But the pastor said God loved a cheerful giver. And I felt a little more cheerful about giving the quarter than I did the dollar. <laughs> but you know what? That's exactly right. God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, it's the word we get the word hilarious from. We ought to see some people laughing next week when they're putting their money in the offer plate. Why? Because they're giving back to God. But you know what? If your attitude is not purposeful, you're going to give begrudgingly. In fact, let me say this. If you're sitting in church and the preacher starts talking about money and it offends you, it's probably because he's poking something that hurts. So, so be careful. Did you know in the New Testament, there's more about money in the pages of the New Testament than there is about heaven and hell? And yet most people would rather hear a sermon on heaven. Why is that? Well, because Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. In fact, I read a quote this week from Augustine that says, Where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. And where your heart is, there is your happiness. I've had people tell me before, you know, if I won the lottery, I'd give a million dollars to the church. Really? How much are you giving now? Someone has said, it's not what you do with a million if fortune should ever be your lot, but what you're doing at present with the dollar and quarter you got. 
So first of all, give purposefully. Next, give generously. Give generously. Proverbs 11.25 says this. Proverbs 11.25 says, The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Here's the principle. If money comes into your life, do you become a pond or a river? I just got to tell you, if you pond it up, there's a place we visit in the Holy Land called the Dead Sea. You know why everything in there is dead? Because it has no outlet. And if all you're doing is building dams and barns to store your stuff and to keep anything from flowing out of your life, then God knows how much he can trust into your life. But Proverbs is saying, you know what? It's the one that becomes a river that he himself has watered. Again, it's not about how much you should keep of your money. It's how much you should keep of God's money. All of it belongs to him. And everything we do with it is stewardship issues. How much you give at church is a stewardship issue, but the way you spend it on everything else is a stewardship issue as well. So the second principle is be generous. read some disturbing statistics about today's church. It says, estimates suggest that the average Christian today is giving less than 3% back to the Lord, with many giving nothing at all. Barry L. Cameron says that if godly people faithfully tithed, there'd be an extra $219 billion available every year for kingdom purposes. Based on the estimated 350,000 churches in America, that's an additional $625,000 for each one. Man, churches wouldn't be making emotional appeals for money if God's people were good stewards and were generous with what God had entrusted to them. In fact, I don't have this on the screen, but Exodus chapter 36, note this down. Exodus 36, they took an offering in Exodus, and they were taking it to build the temple. Listen to this, verse 4. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each one from the work. He was performing, and they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. Wouldn't that be something if long about October the preacher got up and said, Look, y'all quit bringing money. We've had to hire extra people to count it. We don't even know what to do with it anymore. Just take the next three months off. Well, that's never happened. Because preachers, first of all, they'll find something to spend the money on. But that ought to be the heart. That people heard about the need. And people knew how much God had done in their life. So they're giving back to God as good stewards. They're generous. And Moses had to come and say, hey, stop. We got enough. Third thing, give regularly. Give regularly. In this passage, it says, give the first day of every week. And I just want to, I want to encourage you. Listen, if you're paid less than, you know, you're not paid every week. Some people are paid once a month. We had a man in a church I served in North Carolina that was paid once a year. And the church knew once a year we're going to get a big check from this guy. He was faithful in tithing. But you know what? I think it would have been better for him if he would given something every week. Giving ought to be part of worship. When you're putting it in the plate, in fact, I, I tell our guys, they forget when they pray for the offering. I say, we don't take an offering here. We receive an offering. You see the difference? I mean, taking an offering would be past the plate. And if you don't put anything in it, people are going, <coughs> excuse me, 
you know, we're going to pass the plate again. I've heard of churches that did that. My dad owned a lumber company when I was a kid, and there were several churches that he'd end up calling them and saying, hey, you're a little past due on your on what you owe us. So they said, we'll take an offering. And they sure they would. I, I don't know if they locked the doors or not, but they take an offering and count it, and if they didn't get enough, they'd pass the plate again. Well, that's taking an offering. Receiving an offering is when God's people come together and they are prepared to give. And so we receive an offering. Give regularly. In fact, he said, give to the Lord first. It's part of worship. And then last of this thing, these advice suggestions are give with a focus on God. Give with a focus on God. If you're in Corinthians, look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For we know, not in eight. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches in Macedonia, that a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying there's actually an area of Macedonia that I was almost embarrassed to ask them to give to this offering because they don't have anything. And yet those people said, oh, no, we insist. And he's saying this to a church in Corinth that wasn't given anything. And they had an abundance. But at the end of that, verse 5, he says, you know what? They gave themselves to the Lord. They recognized that what they were giving was not just to some people in Jerusalem. They were giving as unto the Lord. So men and women, as you prepare to give your offering, whether it's this week, next week, or at any ministry that you support, first and foremost, your focus ought to be on God. So that's the giving. Let's look at the doing then. Just some real practical instructions that Paul gives. Three people that he's going to highlight. The first one is himself. Let me read this next part of the passage, verses 5 and following. But I will come to you, and after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. So three people that he talks about, first of all, is himself. Just a few applications for what Paul says to himself about himself. Paul's saying, hey, I'm in Ephesus right now, but my intention is to come to you. And just so you know my plans, I plan to kind of take a northerly route, and I'm going to come through Macedonia, and I'm going to end up with you in Corinth. Now, again, a reminder, Paul had started the church in Corinth. He had been there about 18 months. Apollos, that we're going to talk about in a minute, had followed him. But apparently Apollos is not there now. He's back in Ephesus with Paul by the writing of it by the time this letter is written but he was the second 
pastor for the church. Talk about him a little bit more later. But Paul said, that's my intention. I'm going to go through Macedonia, then I'm going to come down to you. And in fact, I don't just want to see you in passing. I want to spend some time with you. And as was the custom of that day, you didn't travel a lot in wintertime, so a lot of times you'd plan your trip so you'd get somewhere and spend a few months during the winter so you weren't, you weren't traveling during the harsh climate of the winter. So Paul says, that's my intention. My intention is to come and spend some time with you. And here's why I'm not leaving yet. Paul said, I need to stay here in Ephesus until Pentecost. A lot of people believe that this letter was written between the Passover and Pentecost. That was 50 days after celebration of Passover was celebration of Pentecost. Now, we in the New Testament only hear that, and we think about it that's associated with Pentecostals, and it is because Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit came and, and uh, the disciples came out and spoke in, in foreign languages, basically. But here's what Paul's saying. This was a celebration. It was one of the great three festivals of the Jewish people. They had the celebration of Passover, celebration of Pentecost, and the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the celebration of Pentecost was this 50th. In fact, it's also called the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. But it was a celebration of 50 days after, uh, after Passover, and it's a time of offering. And so Paul says, I'm waiting for that to happen. But then look what he says. He says, a wide door has opened for me. A wide door for effective service. And he says something very interesting, but there's many adversaries. Well, first question I got is, how do you know the door is wide for ministry? I get that question a few times. Pastor, you know, how do I know what God is telling me to do? One of the best books or workbooks written on this subject is by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. If you've never done it, I encourage you to get in a group where you can do the workbook of Experiencing God. One of the things Henry Blackaby says is the right prayer is not to say, what is God's will for my life? But it's to say, what is God's will? And once you discover God's will, you order your life so that you're in keeping with God's will. I had a guy call me one time, and I've shared this story, but I got a little more to it this week. I had a young man call me one time, left me these messages on my answer machine, my wife and I were out to dinner. By the time we got home, it's 11 or a little after, and he had left several messages. Robert, are you there? When you get in, give me a call. Finally, the last message is, don't worry about calling me back. It's getting late. I'll talk to you some other time. Well, I pick up the phone. I knew he was still up. I called him. He answered the phone. He said, you didn't have to call me tonight. This isn't that important. And I said, no, what is it? He said, I'm just trying to decide what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I thought, well, I'm glad you're not bothering me with something unimportant, you know. That's important. I had lunch with that guy Monday. He's now serving as one of the only two missionary missionaries to youth on Long Island in the Bahamas. And when you hear Long Island, you're thinking New York, but that's not where it is. It's in the Bahamas. His island is 75 miles long, one mile wide. It has two schools on it, the North School and the South School. They had a Bible ministry in the South School, but not in the North School. And so he that's what he's doing now. I had lunch with him Monday, and it brought back the memory of when he was a teenager he's in his 30s now when he was a teenager he's wondering what am i going to do with the rest of my life i'm proud of the fact that this guy has gone into ministry and is now ministering on the island of the bahamas sharing the good news of jesus christ with those people now how do you know that the door is wide open well you got to know god you will hear from god god's not going to keep that a secret god's going to let you know 
with his steady voice. If you ever sense that, that the plans are kind of here, there, and yonder, and kind of this curvy road. Now, the road may be curvy, but if you feel like you can't get clarity, it's probably not from God. Because God's not the author of confusion. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's got a purpose. But you notice the other thing Paul said? This wide door for ministry is open, but there are many adversaries. I just had to stop when I read that because I thought, you know what, Lord? That would have stopped most of us. Paul saw the wide door for ministry. But a lot of us, as soon as we face opposition, what do we do? Well, that must not have been God's will. (laughs) Not walking through that door. Let me find another door. Maybe there's a window. Maybe there's a back door. So is it possible to be right in the center of God's will, doing exactly what God wanted you to do, and yet you're facing opposition? The answer is yes. Listen, if you're serving at your church and you're meeting opposition, you need to go back and ask the question, God, am I doing what you call me to do? And it may very well be that you're doing exactly what God called you to do. You're just facing opposition. In fact, G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, if you have no opposition in the place you serve, you are serving in the wrong place. Listen, we all want to serve where it's easy. But I promise you, if you're doing anything significant for God, there'll be difficulty. There'll be opposition. So Paul says, listen, I plan to come, but I've got to finish what God's told me to do here. Then he mentions Timothy. In fact, most scholars believe Timothy's the one that brought this letter. So obviously he made it, or they wouldn't have had the letter, okay? Well, what does Paul say? Listen, when Timothy gets there, make sure he has no reason to be afraid. In other words, how about treating him nice? Now, keep in mind, Paul is sending Timothy, this young man in the Lord, who's kind of like a son to him, who apparently was a little timid. He's sending him, of all places, to Corinth. And so Paul says, listen, when he gets there, how about making sure you treat him right? Treat him in such a way that he doesn't have to be afraid. Because you people would scare some people. So Paul says, make sure he's not afraid. In fact, let no one despise him. The word literally means to make nothing of. In other words, when he gets there, you make sure that people don't just write him off. Why? Because he's doing a ministry in the Lord just like I am. Paul's saying, I'm putting him on the same level of minister with me in this sense. Treat him like you would me. And then he talks about Apollos. He said, listen, I, I, I greatly encouraged Apollos to come. But he was in no way having anything of it. And scholars think, you know, I asked the question, why wouldn't Apollos go? Well, it may be, like Paul, he's saying, no, God's called me here. I can't go yet. I'll go eventually, because that's what it says. When the opportune time comes, I will go. It could also be that the beginning of the letter to the First Corinthians, if you remember, Paul says, you know what, there's factions in the church. And some of you are saying that you're of Paul. Some of you are saying you're of Apollos. Some of you are even saying you're of Jesus. And it's split in the church. You ought to all be really of Jesus. But quit picking sides based on names. And so it could be that Apollo says, you know what, I'm not getting back into that. Because if I show up without Paul, it's just going to raise the banner of those people who are following me instead of God. And so he doesn't go yet. Then the last thing as we close is the living. Folks, this is where just a couple of verses of just real practical instruction from Paul. Verse 13, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do 
be done in love. Quickly, just these four things. First, be on the alert. Literally, be determined to stay awake. Have you ever been somewhere where it's hard to do that? Have you ever been in church? Now, I hope it's not happening now. You ever been in church where it's just, I mean, your head just kept, you know, I remember in school, at times you finally just lay your head down on the desk and like you wake up and you've been drooling on the desk. I mean, it's just, it's embarrassing. I remember doing a lock-in at a church and I'm sitting about where Ricky is and I'd been up all night. I'm doing the lock-in, you know, we, but the, the last part of that, we're going to church and all of us are just, you know, I'm thinking, I know the preacher can see me. I'm not sitting far enough away. So that's what Paul's saying is, guys, listen, get the sleep out of your eyes. Be alert. It's mentioned 22 times in the New Testament. Be alert. What are they alert for? Be alert for the fact that there's an enemy called Satan. Be alert for him. Be alert for false teachers. Be alert for temptation. But also be alert for the return of Christ. One of the promises we have is the crown of righteousness that God gives to those who love his appearance. So be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Folks, this is to stand firm on your convictions. Here's what had been happening in the Corinthian church. They had come to faith in Christ. Paul had left. Apollos had left. New people had come and become a part of the church that were telling lies. Who weren't teaching the truth anymore. And so people were kind of wavering. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, listen. Stand firm in the truth. Stand firm in your convictions. Men and women, I just want to say, if you don't have convictions, you have nothing to stand firm in. The church in America is in desperate need of men and women of conviction during these days. And Paul's saying, have convictions, but stand firm. Listen, when you know you're standing where you're supposed to stand, you don't have to move. Then he says, in fact, then he says, act like men. Now, who's he writing this to? Well, he's not writing it to the ladies. Okay? He is saying be mature. In fact, he said that throughout this epistle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, Brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, you're still not able to. Let me just meddle just a minute to the men. Ladies, you can take a minute off. Why does Paul have to tell men to act like men? It's because they weren't acting like men. They weren't being men of courage. And I just want to say in the church today, women are having to step into roles that are either non-traditional, even in some cases non-biblical, because men won't. It's real quiet. So, men, I'm just saying, hey, man up. The generation we live in needs to have men who will stand upon convictions and stand firm in the faith. And men, you've got to know the Word of God in order to do that. Okay, ladies, you can tune back in. I'm done. And then he says, be strong. Literally, increase in vigor. And this is neat. It's in the passive voice. voice. So what is it saying? Be strong does not mean, okay. No, it means allow God to strengthen you. That's where our dependence is. A number of years ago, I did a retreat up, up in Myrtle Beach. And the guy leading worship did a great job, but there was one song he sang. I just didn't like the song. The song, the, basically it said, Lord, I pray today my strength won't fail. And I thought, your strength? And I'm praying every day my strength will fail because I'm dependent on God. 
And I'm not asking God to give me strength. I'm asking God to be my strength. That's what it says when Paul says, be strong in the Lord. It's in the passive voice, meaning allow God to strengthen you. How do we do that? Every day we confess our dependence on God. Because there's stuff that will come your way that without God, you can't handle it. You ever heard, God, heard people say, well, God will never put on you anything more than you can handle? Yes, he will. Now, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. With every temptation, will provide a way of escape. But, folks, our dependence on God, if we didn't need God, if we could handle it without him, Jesus didn't have to come and die on the cross. I am utterly dependent on God. The reason I need to be strong and him be my strength is because I can't do it without him. Then the last thing he says, overarching all of that, let all be done in love. Let all be done in love. He's written a great definition of that a few chapters earlier, and we looked at that a few weeks ago. But you know what? If we would just treat people the way God would treat people, we don't have to remember a whole lot else. And there's some people that are hard to love. I was one of them. You know what it took for God to love me? It took... Him being willing to die on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love for me wasn't easy or cheap. But because he loved me, he proved it on the cross. You know what that means for me? Sometimes i got to pray, God, help me see people the way you do. Because some people can be annoying. Some people can be hard to love. Some people so desperately want attention, they think by being obnoxious, I'll at least get your attention. I had a kid like that in my youth group. I finally just said, you know what? I enjoy spending time with you, but if you don't change, I'm not going to hang around you anymore. As I got to know him, I realized why he was that way when I met his parents. There's people that we encounter every day who are desperate for somebody to just love them. Will you pray with me? Father, we close this message and we recognize Paul closing this letter to the Corinthians. God, help us to do what it is he says to do. Help us to give purposefully and generously and strategically and regularly. God, help us to do the the work of the church. God, also help us to love people the way you would. God, when we encounter people in our lives that are hard to love, would you just remind us of how much you've loved us? And God, would you allow us to catch a glimpse of how you view that person? Thank you. God, thank you for loving us first. We pray this in Jesus' name.